I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Episode 46 of the Drive Nation podcast. And this week, we're looking back at a handful of recent Drive Nation posts over on Instagram. We do this sometimes, mostly when a handful of our posts have sparked a bit of debate, a bit of discussion, and this podcast is just a good opportunity for us to respond to some of that conversation. Um, Andrew, we're filming this one again over Zoom, so hello people watching on YouTube. Um, uh, Some people commented, responded to us, and they were kind enough to pretend that they enjoyed being able to see our faces yeah, uh, we, or even we chat rubbish. Hard to imagine. Well, <laughs> I think I think perhaps people actually enjoyed peering inside our houses. I mean, they're not seeing much inside my house. No, you, 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 you've, got, you've gone very stealth, haven't you? Um, and I if have, anybody looks I at have. mine, all they'll find are, are endless car books on my wall. There's not very anything particularly interesting there either. Well, no, but at least people can see that you're not pretending to be obsessed with cars. It's oh, quite people do this. People, people do this, though, don't they? There's all sorts of research that's come out now about exactly the things you need to have in the background of your oh. <laughs> of your Zoom call to establish your maximum credibility with whoever it is that you're that, that you're talking to. So this is in fact carefully curated. These aren't actually books at all. They're just sort of big sheets of <laughs> stuff that I put up there, which make to, to look like books. It's just wallpaper. Well, talking of credibility, I think that's a photograph over your. Is that your? I, I can't tell because it's flipped. Is that your left shoulder? That's my uh, left shoulder. Is that a list of cost in Coupe at Goodwood? It is. That one there. Yes, that's me racing the one and only, literally, list of cost in Coupe. This is the car that actually won the TT at Goodwood last year um, yeah. with a bloke called Andre, Le- Lo- Andre Lotterer driving it. Um, then it was me sharing it with Richard Atwood uh, in <laughs> 2011. Um, and uh, I'm going to stop making excuses now. Um, but we had a sick engine. Um, and we had terrible conditions and you can set it up for the wet or the dry it's fine but it hated going from one to the other uh, we came I don't know so you could probably see from there I can't remember where we came I think we came sort of 10th or 11th and it was great fun so there you go well, that was me sharing a list with Richard Atwood at Goodwood that's very cool yeah talk of credibility right let's get stuck in so the first one I want to talk about um, and we're not going to do loads on this but last week you reviewed the Porsche Taycan and yeah, I, I just—I mean, just Taycan, the base yes. model, which is just yes. called Taycan. There's nothing, yes. no suffixes there. Um, and it, I, I want to talk about this one because there were a few responses in the comments section underneath, and I think one in particular said, "If this car is so bad, why is it still an eight out of 10? Well, because it's not so bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple answer, isn't it? I mean, if Porsche had launched that car. And we hadn't already had the 4S, and we didn't know any of the other stuff about it. Um, I mean, it would still get an 8 out of 10, but it would get an extremely positive review because it's a really good car. You know, other than the 4S, there's not an electric car out there that I would rather have. Um, But you have to see these cars in context, don't you? You have to see them in the perspective of, you know, what else has become available or has already been available. And to me... Yeah, the 4S, which is absolutely the best electric car, is just a better proposition uh, for reasons I went into in the post. Um, The standard Taycan, uh, and the point that I kind of made is that we, the Porsche purists, we always bang on, don't we, about less is more. And, you know, it's always the entry level car, particularly with things like 911s. 
and you'd think that the standard Taycan, you know, the rear engine, rear wheel drive, the kind of, you know, Porsche 911 of Taycans, um, would therefore, by that basis, be the one to have. But it's just, it just hasn't quite got enough get up and go. You know, there, oh, there really? aren't, you, you know, so you know, electric cars, you know, one thing they do do well is they do do the business of going fast pretty well. Um, and I'm not that interested in electric cars will get to 60 in 2.1 seconds. But nevertheless, at the other end of that, you know, th- there has to be a level of convincing performance. And it's just not quite there. And it's got, I think it's about, I don't think it's quite as quick to 60, even if you've got the big battery, um, as the Mustang Mach-E electric SUV. Okay? Um, and, yeah... A four, whereas a 4S, you put your foot down in that and the thing really, really goes. Um, and this one doesn't. And if there was an enormous uh, benefit in terms of the way that the car handled because it was so much lighter, that would be one thing. Um, or if it had a much bigger boot because it doesn't have an electric motor in the front, that would be another. But it doesn't. I mean, it's 90 kilos lighter, but in the context of a 2.1 ton car, that's not that much. Um, it's no more practical. Um, I mean, really, it's the car that you have if you really want an electric Porsche. Um, and money is important to you. And it's, I think it's like 13 grand cheaper than a 4S. And I think, you know, on those grounds, it's absolutely, there's a very, very strong case for it. You know, if you're going to spend 70 grand on an electric car, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that you do anything else. The only point I sought to make is that a 4S is a better shot if you can afford it. That's it. Not the Turbo or the Turbo S, um, because as I've said before, I think that they they go too far. They provide a level of performance which is not really usable for a huge additional cost. Um, but yeah, I think of all the Taycans, the 4S is the absolute runaway best of them all. Um, next door's washing machine is on a spin cycle. So <laughs> forgive me if you can hear that <laughs> clattering away in the background. It sounds like a like a, a 90, late 1990s, early noughties Golf diesel engine doing 4,000 RPM while stationary. Um, hopefully you won't be able to hear that too loudly in the background. Yeah, the, the thing about the, this base Taycan still being an 8 out of 10 is that we review cars in context, don't we? We come, come at them from a perspective. And the, the context with the, this base Taycan is that it follows the earlier models. Um, one in particular is of which is probably, as you, you describe it, the best electric car you can buy at the moment. And so what we're doing is, look, is, is comparing it in that context. And so you can find it ever so slightly underwhelming, perhaps, and it still be an exceptionally good car. Yeah, you've got to look it at just, it in terms it, it, of you know, the alternatives that are out there, you know, both the Porsche alternatives and the non-Porsche alternatives. Um, and there's only, of them all, one other electric car on sale which I'd rather drive, which is the 4S. Yeah, so that doesn't I make had it a bad similar. Company, no, I had something similar with the GR Yaris. Um, there's already a bit of a, a community around that car, and people yeah. who feel quite strongly about it. Um, and I've said in the past that it's brilliant, but actually there are other, even hot hatches that I would prefer to drive on the road. That um, you drove for one. That's right. Yeah, which is yeah. Honestly, that car is more fun for me than some. Lamborghinis on the road you know I just mm. it's, it's a little gem that car it's a really special little thing I just adore it um, yeah and, and you know if it, it's interesting you can, you can say that publicly that the, the, the I find the Fiesta more fun than the Yaris and people will read that as though I've got a real downer on the Yaris and I think there's a bit of a narrative now that says I, I just I think it's overhyped and underwhelming but actually that's not true at all I think it's a brilliant thing no, it's a great car but sometimes we're we're out there looking for the cars that will be icons, that will change the game. And almost by definition, most of them fall flat. And so we're just describing them in those terms, aren't we? We're not saying that they're in any way bad cars. No, not at all. So are you going to talk to us about the, uh, about the Litchfield Yaris, which I'm itching to have a go in? <laughs> That's in my list. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's do it. So, yeah. What have they done with it? These are early days, actually. Um, they, there's much more to come. They've got two cars, which is why they've been able to do some engine tuning and some chassis tuning already. Um, just before you go into this, do you think you ought to just explain to people who Litchfield are and what they do, just in mm. case they're... What people don't know about my connection to Ian Litchfield, and actually it's entirely 
coincidental. We went to the same school, years apart though, um, the, the castle school in Thornbury. Um, he, he certainly went to the sixth form. I, I'm not sure if he went to the, the secondary school. Um, but he, he set up his tuning company. Actually, I mentioned that because <clears throat> Litchfield Imports, as it was known, it started as a sixth form project. He, I think he, he did a, some sort of case study on importing cars, MX-5s, I believe, from Japan. And the case study was so good that his, t- his tutor told him that he should go and do it. And so he did. He just started importing cars. But anyway, over the years, he's built up this very, very highly regarded tuning company. Um, made its name originally with Subaru Impressors, but then more recently yeah. and more emphatically with Nissan GTRs. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. And, um, and particularly as everything switched to turbocharging, that yeah. just open this whole new world of opportunity for tuning companies because they can actually just get into the ECUs and turn the boost up um, and then, you know, of course, do lots, uh, lot, lots besides. But he's, he now has this very, very highly regarded tuning company that uh, if you go to his place, you see just rows and rows of Nissan GTRs. But they'll do everything now. They do, they'll do McLarens, they do BMWs, they do yeah. Mercedes-AMGs, the whole lot. Um, and so he's... He's bought himself two of these GI Yaris's because, A, he just loves cars and there's such a hype around this car and it's so exciting for all the right reasons. He just felt like he had to have a go. But also because a lot of his clients who have collections of very high-end stuff, they all just wanted a GI Yaris because it's such a brilliant little concept. Um, so he's got a couple of them and he's been fiddling about with them. The, he's got two cars, one's for engine development, one's for chassis development. And so the engine car, as I said, these are early days. It's just a, a plug-and-play ECU tuning box, which costs 600 quid. And you, can, it's, it, you use an app on your smartphone to switch between maps. Um, and so that lifts power to about 300 horsepower. And you, uh, and you can presumably is, turn up there in your car and drive it away again, well, however long, an hour later, yeah. with them having done it. Exactly. Yeah, turn up with 260 horsepower, leave with 300. And it definitely feels quicker, <clears throat> just pulls harder through the mid-range, up to the top end. I mean, that, that little engine, that little turbo three-pot is a ripper anyway, but it just gives it a bit more urgency. It's not night and day, though. Um, and I think that night and day power upgrade will come once they've cracked the ECU, once they've done exhaust and intake systems, um, yeah. once they've done much more detailed, in-depth, um, engine tuning having said that it's a tiny car it's quite light 300 horsepower yeah, d- d- sounds like does enough it doesn't it, it? <laughs> does it need it? I mean, would, would you choose to go and throw all your money at that or would you choose to throw it at you know we, we said this about the GRS before haven't we that it's it, it's it's amazingly f- um, fast um, and it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing actually to drive on both the rail track but it could be even more fun than it is if it was just a little bit more flamboyant yep. and if i was going to be spending money on it because you know you wrote about the the, the the chassis car and the suspension that it's got and just how adjustable that suspension is so presumably you could just really you know stiffen it up at the back uh, and just get it skidding around all over the place if you wanted to i suspect you could yeah so the the chassis upgrade is a set of nitron coilovers and they're two-way adjustable so for bump and rebound um through 25 damper clicks so there's quite a yeah. lot of adjustability in them um, and you're right, if, you, if that's what you want to achieve, I suspect you could soften off the front axle, stiffen up the rear axle, put all that roll resistance into the back and therefore make the car yeah. more inherently oversteer, you know, shift the balance to, towards oversteer. I'd love to have a go at that. Um, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't when I was there and the, the coilovers were set, set up somewhere down the middle. Um, and so there was still that kind of tension in the ride quality that you expect from that sort of car. But just allowing each wheel and each tyre just to breathe a little bit over, over the bumps. But also that the body control, particularly when you land into a compression, it does what, the, what for me the best damped cars do. And you'll, you'll land into the compression quite hard at speed and it'll be one damper stroke and then you're back to, back yeah. to middle, you know, back to the centre point. Yeah. Um, as though it, it always no, feels no like oscillation. No oscillation, no scraping. Yeah. No yeah. running out of travel, none of that. Yeah. No, no bouncing up again, just 
yeah. and away you go. The way, if you watch rally cars on tarmac, world rally championship cars on tarmac, sometimes you see them going through these dips and compressions. You just think, oh my God, how is that thing so tautly controlled um, yeah. without skipping about all over the place? And that's because the dampers are unbelievably good on those things and perfectly yeah. tuned and set up. Um, and so, yeah, these, these Nitron dampers on the Litchfield car are, are very good. And, but I actually think that half the fun would be fiddling about with those damper clicks and learning what the, the differences are and getting the car set up exactly the way you like it for a particular road or for going out on circuit or whatever. Just, I think it adds another dimension to that ownership, which would be just great fun. Mega. Before we go on to the next point, I just have to go and do something off camera. It's actually, I'm actually going to blow my nose which I don't think that people really need to see. So if you just bear with me one second, I'll keep talking. Oh. Such right. professional. And he's back in the room. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, Thank good. you. Okay. Actually, do you know what? I just want to mention Nitron again because uh, Ian's got a, an A110, an Alpine A110, and he's got his car so, oh, on the set we, of we, those. We, it's another podcast with an A110 yeah. just sneaking in through the back door, isn't it? <laughs> I know, you probably thought we were going to mention, go, go a whole hour without talking about... I did naively entertain the possibility, but, but, but clearly not. Sorry, <laughs> you were talking about your A110. So, not my A110, no, Litchfield's A110, because it's on a set of these Nitron coilovers. Okay. Um, and it's interesting, his, his car, I think it probably looks a bit too uh, low to the ground for my taste, but his is set up on the deck, so it looks like it's really squat to the ground. But these... These dampers are so beautifully set up that the car rides even better than the best so, standard A110s I've driven. So how long is it going to be before your A110s on them too? Well, I think they're a couple of grand, maybe even three grand for a set of this suspension. So yeah, one would day, this be a good time to no. mention our Patreon account then? <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. If you want my A110 to get a nice fancy set of nitron dampers. <laughs> uh, okay, let's leave that one there. Um, all right, I also want to talk about the Toyota GT86, because it's, yeah. last week was a big week for that car. Yes. The, the UK's last GT86 was sold, um, so bravo to whoever bought that car. You've got the last one in the UK. Do you th- so the car was on sale for nine years. It arrived yeah. here in 2012, and yeah. according to Toyota UK's numbers, figures, 7,500 were sold. What do you think when you hear that number? Depends, doesn't it? Depends what I mean. It's not a lot, um, no. but it's not. But it's not a train wreck either. But it's not very many. I mean, compared to you know Audi TTs, yeah, um, or or any car like that. Or I suspect even compared to um, more expensive stuff like you know Porsche Caymans, um, it's it's probably not a big number. Um, but at the same time, I think the the very fact that you and I are having this conversation is evidence of the success of that car. The very fact that we're talking about Toyota um, and, you know, what fun cars they've been making. This is the, the, you know, this is the purpose that goes beyond the, set, the, 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 the showroom with, the, with these cars. They are all, I mean, even if they are lost leaders, they are all there to, you know, brighten up the brand, aren't they? Um, yeah. And to create associations and to make feel, people feel better about the business of owning a Toyota. And I think in those terms... Um, you know, as as I'm sure the GR Yaris is already doing. Um, I think I, I, I think it's done the job it set out to do, and, and in the meantime, those of us who've been lucky enough to drive them have had a huge amount of fun. <laughs> Actually, you, you, were still... a, you were a bit down on it. I mean, I, I, I went back <laughs> because I knew we were doing this podcast. I went back and read what you wrote. I'm not talking about mismatched control weights and you know um, what else did you say? Your notchy gear change and the coarseness of the engine and everything else. And I just I just wonder what kind of mood you're in when you wrote that stuff because I mean to me not a perfect car at all. But yeah, but there's a big picture there, uh, which is that if you had one, every time you drove it you would oversteer. Yeah, you've said this before. And, <laughs> you've never completed a journey in one without doing a skid. Well, no, because you know. You can, and why wouldn't you? And it's, um, I, I love it. I, I, I forgive old car an awful lot for the uh, for the ability to do that. Um, I think so, I, in the next slide, I think I did say it now seems churlish to nitpick like yes. that because well, it, it did basically You're correct. The, the the car's heart. I said this in the piece. The car's heart was in the right place. If you love driving, it just set out to be brilliant to drive. 
You know, it's it's light actually for a, a just about a four seater coupe. Um, yeah. It's small. Uh, it's a manual box, normally aspirated engine, and it's just set up to be fun to drive. That's the whole point uh, of it. Yeah, and Prius tyres. They they, they yeah. really weren't you know tyres which are quite like Prius tyres or the same size of Prius. They were Prius tyres. So that, I mean, were you there at Autocar that day when we had one for handling day, or were you not at no. Autocar then? Okay, so we no. did it at we did it at, where did we do it? I think we did it at Rockingham, I think, or Bedford. Bedford, maybe. Anyway, what I, what I can't remember where we were, but what I can remember is A, it won, beating a <laughs> huge amount of, un- but, you know, all the, you know, the, 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 you know, the Porsches and the Ferraris and the Lambos and all the stuff that usually turn up. And despite the fact that this car spent an entire day going sideways, while other cars, which were much less flamboyant, you know, eight sets of tyres and, you know, I kept on having to be reshot. By the end of it, you looked at the GT86's tyres and you could barely see they, 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 they won. They were so hard. Um, which just meant you could just keep on enjoying it and skidding it around, and yeah, it was a, it was a joyous car. I mean, not perfect by any means, you know. Yeah. Certainly, a better car to drive than to live with, um, and a you know particular certain sort of person's car. But you know, if you were that person, wow. Yeah, I, I've, I have driven one at Bedford, and I just had a real blast. I think I enjoyed driving it there more than anywhere else. Road, I mean, um, yeah, and it was. Yeah, just just such fun to hoon about in. And if you enjoy driving on circuit, I just think that's exactly the kind of driving that you'll enjoy. You're, you're not going that fast, really, but you're, you'll be having a great time. Um, did you ever drive the Subaru? Hmm, good question. I don't think I did. Was there any discernible yes, difference between... definitely. Was there? Definitely. No. Yeah, the, the, the Subaru was... Actually, if I, if I owned one... I'd actually probably get the Subaru because although I love the the ridiculous um, what the word to use flamboyance of the of the GT86, the Subaru was just better. It was just set up slightly differently, um, oh. and it, it, it was just. I mean, it was still slide and slide and do whatever you wanted to do, but it wasn't kind of its default setting wasn't sideways. You kind of had to prod it a bit, and then it would still do it, and then it was fine. Um, and it just felt a little bit more grown up, I suppose. Um, and I think that. Uh, were you to live with both cars for a year, I think at the end, I think you'd probably prefer the Subaru just because um, it would still do all that stuff. But, you know, if, if you didn't actually want to go to work looking out the side window, then you didn't have to. Um, so, mm. yeah. But, 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 but not, I mean, I don't prefer it night and day. It was, but it was interesting that Subaru went a slightly different way with it. Uh, and just to see almost the sort of philosophical approach to setting the cars up that the two companies took. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think for one lap, definitely the Toyota, but for a lifetime, the Subaru. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, going back to the GT86, then I think it it not only reminded the world in 2012 that Toyota could build fun cars. I think it also reminded Toyota that it could build fun yeah. cars because the you know the Supra came a few years after. We've now got the GR Yaris. Um, yeah. It's been involved in uh, at Le Mans in the World Endurance Championship for many years now. Yeah. And someone I saw someone on Twitter say, "Is it possible that Toyota is now the world's most exciting car brand?" And it's, I mean, it, you can have a discussion about that, can't you? They're, they're, from an enthusiast point of view, they're doing some great stuff now. I mean, it is, it is amazing, given where they've come from. Um, I mean, Toyota have, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the original MR2. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they have, so they have done this from time to time. And they've obviously, you know, the Supra's been around for um, in various guises, on and off, um, for years. So, so Toyota have always known how to do these sorts of cars, but I don't think there's ever been quite so concerted an effort to really, really uh, establish its credentials um, than we're seeing at the moment. And it's great, and it's great. And it's because um, Toyota-san, you know, the main man at Toyota, is a complete and utter rampant raging petrol head. Um, mm. And I think that he he really gets um, these sorts of cars and the benefits they can provide for his company. Mm, yeah, good. And we're, we're confident that the GT86 will be replaced. The BRZ yeah. has been replaced, but it's not coming to Europe, the, the new car. Um, reportedly, the new GT86 will be the GR86, which that, makes sense. That would make given sense. That they have this new GR naming thing for their fast cars. Um, 
Some reports say it'll be turbocharged, but the, the BRZ isn't. It's got a 2.4-litre normally aspirated engine. We don't know. Um, but give us three uh, number one, so three uh, priority jobs for this new car to improve it over the old one. More torque. So okay, so well, okay, so what it mustn't do is is, is weigh considerably more. That's job one. Um, I think we have to accept these days that these sorts of cars, particularly if they're going to gain things like turbochargers, which are heavy uh, and have more power, which requires more cooling, and blah, 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 that you know weight is an issue. So you really don't want the weight to go up very much, if at all. That's job one. Uh, job two is to provide the car with some torque, which the turbos will do. Uh, I think if the GT86 had a problem, it was you know it's quite a small engine producing quite a lot of power, and the only way you can do that from uh, normally aspirated engines is to make them rev um, and you did have to really really work at a GT86 and I'm not saying that's wrong but I think that you know if you had the choice uh, of not having to do that that would be that would be good um, and I think I guess the third thing just in practical terms is just to make just just, just to give it a slightly more civilized interior just make it just slightly more user-friendly because I think that means it'll just be more popular and more people will get to uh, enjoy it um, so long as it still has that you know that wonderful approach to the open road yeah i mean it's just great that <clears throat> toyota are sticking with it we were in a discussion during the supra launch weren't we a couple of years ago with some engineers from toyota who explained to us that the by the skin of its teeth the gt86 is considered a commercial success within yeah. toyota hq um, yeah. it was a it was a finely judged thing it's yeah. And so bravo to them for going, okay, well, it, it didn't make us any money, um, but it's, it does a huge amount for Toyota's credibility it, within a certain market. What do you, seeing as we're just talking Toyota and you're talking about the Supra launch, what did you think of, or what do you think of the Supra? I haven't driven the new four-cylinder one, um, which I'm looking forward to. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess given that you own one of its rivals, um, whether you thought that car was absolutely on the money or something of a pulled punch. Um, I came away from that first launch in Spain thinking pulled punch, thinking I expected a bit more. Um, it, it just seemed quite a middle of the road sports car and <clears throat> very GT like actually, um, yeah. which is perhaps what they wanted from it. I don't know, but. It, I, I've never longed to drive one again, um, mm. and I ha- I've driven them since. I've driven the two-liter car as well, um, and I just, I'm just not quite sure why you would pick it over some of the exceptionally capable rival cars that it's up against. That 50 yeah. grand sports car category nowadays, mm. I mean, wow, <laughs> there's so much stuff in there, um, yeah. and I, ju- I don't know what they need to do for me. It, it maybe, maybe I'm waiting for a. A lighter, a GR. more focused one. I don't, a GR, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, well, it is a GR, isn't it? But Well, it is, but I mean, it's kind of like a GR, GR, kind of proper. Yeah. Um, I mean, what surprised me about it was, you know, we were talking to those engineers, weren't we? And we were, we were trying to, we're quizzing them quite closely about just how Toyota it is and just how kind of BMW Z4 it is. And they said, no, absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. We got the same underpinnings, but in terms of the way the cars were developed, we literally didn't talk to them. We had no conversations. There were no shared mm. testing programs. We never went to any of the same places. We never did the same things. Um, the first time we found out what a Z4 was like was when it had been done. They never drove our car. We never drove their cars. And yet you go and drive it and you think, it's really quite like a Z4, isn't it? And, <laughs> and, and, and it just, it, I, I mean, I, I was yeah, disappointed as well, which doesn't mean I think it was bad. No. Um, but if you put it in a, in a triple test with a Cayman and, a, uh, and an A110, it would come third. Um, mm. and oh, a lot of that speaks volumes for just how capable are the cars in that, in that category now um, but at the same time you know you have this opportunity to really make a statement and I guess maybe it's because they've got to keep you know, they, they, they have to bear in mind uh, you know the cars to sell all over the world to all sorts of people um, and maybe they took the view that they've got the GT86, which is playing the really fun card. And so what they want is a car which is actually far more user-friendly. And, mm. you know, it may appeal less to idiots like you and me, but actually out there to the mainstream. Um, the fact that it is quite uncomfortable and everything else is far more important than, you know, whatever you or I might prioritize ahead of that. It feels so, a bit I like think they, I, th- I think they should still do a lightweight, more powerful, stiffer, 
proper driving machine. And I think probably they've got the platform for it. I don't see why you can't do that. Um, mm. So I hope they do. Yeah, really uncork it. Really go for it. Um, <clears throat> so I have driven the two-litre car, the four-cylinder one. Um, 100 kilograms lighter. And you, you feel that. You do sense that. It doesn't feel underpowered. Still got yeah. 258 horsepower, I think. Um, 100 kilograms. Quite... That's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot, yeah. It is a lot. You do feel it. But it doesn't fundamentally change the character of the car. Still okay. feels quite GT-ish. Still feels big around you. Um, it's di- I, I always find it difficult to feel like I'm right on top of that car and wringing yeah. everything out of it. I don't yeah. feel that way in that little French sports car. I don't feel that way in a Cayman um, mm. or even a, an M2 Comp. You know, I, I feel like yeah. I can get right on top of them um, yeah. and wring them out. But the Supra always just keeps me at arm's length a little bit. And I've never fallen for it because of that. No. no well, fair comment. Do you think... As of last week, you've driven a brand new Lotus Elise variant for the last time. Unless Absolutely. they bring the name back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, the, well, the, well, I mean, they've called it the final edition, so they'd have to call, <laughs> clue, call it the it? final, final edition, or the <laughs> we were only kidding edition. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, a really good way to go out. Um, you know, cracking little car. So the final edition of the Elise, um, which will be in production from now until the autumn. They say that production will be limited, but I love it when car manufacturers did this. McLaren did this with a 600 LT. They said production will be limited. And you say, well, to how many units? And they won't tell you. Um, And what they mean is it's limited to the number that we can build and the number that we can can sell. And in the Elise's case, um, it is capped simply by the fact that they need the factory um, back for converting to the type 131 um whatever that's going to be um by the autumn so it will the the elise will die in the autumn as will the exige as will the evora as we know um and you know 25 years on i think it's still an absolutely cracking sports car i mean it's not cheap anymore you know the final edition is forty five thousand pounds um mm. so we've already talked about some of the sorts of cars that that's you know that that's up against i mean that's kind of nudging on the door of boxster and everything else but actually as a thing just to get in and hoon around in they're still brilliant because they still weigh okay they're not as light as they used to be but they've got a lot more power than they used to have and it's still less than a ton of car it's still mm. really really low it still feels really structurally you know, for a car without a roof it still feels structurally really stiff um and, it, and it's got that thing you were talking about, but even more so. You just feel so on top of it. You just feel so much part of the machine. Uh, and you just feel that you can place it anywhere, do anything with it. And um, yeah, I mean, everything that you really want a proper driving machine to be. Um, and yeah, I'll miss it because, you know, I was around, um, you know, the first time I ever went in an Elise was, it might even have been 1995. It, if it wasn't 95, it was certainly very early 96. Uh, and I had a sort of slightly, one of those sort of off the record meet and lay by outside of test track meetings with uh, with Matt Becker, who now is head of you know chassis development and engineering in Aston Martin. Um, but he was a very young, fresh-faced lad there. And his dad, Roger Becker, was the Lotus chassis handling guru. Um, and Matt and I went off in this car. I wasn't allowed to drive it. It was one of those ghastly passenger seat assessments <laughs> that you have to do, which I hate. Um, but even I, back then, even from the passenger seat, could just tell, just because you can tell how well a car is damped. You can get a feel for its, its poison, that sort of thing. I can just remember thinking, this is what a Lotus should be. Um, mm. You know, it is small, it is light, it is clever, it is simple. It is absolutely a car of which Colin Chapman would have been very very proud and I think the proof of the pudding not that we knew it at the time was that 25 years later I mean it survived for 25 years which is over a third of the entire time that Lotus itself has existed Um, and you know and it kept the company alive in that time I mean you know obviously Mm. there was the Exige which came along which is you know essentially the same car but with the roof and I don't imagine Lotus ever made much money out of the Evora Um, and yet, you know, it sold so well and it lasted so long that 2018 was the best sales year Lotus had ever had. And I'm sure, I don't know how many cars they sold, but I would bet you plenty that the vast majority of them were releases. And even then, that was like 22 years after the car came out. So, you know, one of, and I've, I've said this before, it's not just a great Lotus. It is 
one of the world's greatest sports cars of any period and of any kind. Um, and you know, I hope that one day they'll do another. I think that there is a considerable incentive not to do another. Um, yeah, for several reasons. Um, you know, this, it's quite low volume, and because you can't charge the world for it, it's quite low margin. You know, Lotus, I think, has said that its future is going to be inc- increasingly, or maybe even exclusively, electrified. Um, so, you know, I don't know how you make an electric Elise. Um, but they also, you know, would, would say things like, well, of course, by the time we have to do that, everything else will be electric too. So you won't be comparing it to cars which don't exist anymore. You'll be comparing it to other electric cars. And the job is not to do as well then as the Elise does now. The job is to do mm. better then than any of its rivals do at the same time. Uh, and that's a perspective we don't have at the moment. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm always interested to see what those guys do. And it's great that they've got some money behind them now because, you know, then hopefully we will really be able to see what they're capable of. Um, but in the meantime, you know, bye-bye, Elise. You know, thanks for all the fun. It's been, it's been a blast. Yeah, and we know that there will be an electric sports car coming from Lotus soon because they're partnering with that French company. Um, and <laughs> they're, 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 they're building a, a shared architecture, electric ar- architecture, aren't they? And yeah. the, the Alpine will be a replacement for, for the current A110, um, yeah. we think 2025 or 26, so a few years to go. But that raises such an interesting question. I mean, if those guys, you think the, the combined talents and capabilities that Lotus and Alpine have in making fun, engaging sports cars, if between them they're not able to make an all-electric sports car somehow great to drive, then there must be something inherently wrong with that kind of um, powertrain because... Well, just just look at their look at their um, look at the credits that they have to their name. It's what do you reckon? So it, we can talk about it in context of the A110 because the current car is 1,100 kilos with a piston engine and a dual clutch box. Um, yeah. I reckon that with a useful range of maybe up to 200 um, miles, the electric replacement for that car will be maybe 13, 1350 kilograms, perhaps yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's okay. still not. It's it's still pretty light, isn't it? And you will be. They will be able to. They'll have much more freedom to put the weight where they want to. Um, yeah. You know, I presume it'll have the usual sort of skateboard layout, so the batteries are all slung along the floor of the car, so very very low. Um, you know, they will be able to do really really clever things um, with things like torque vectoring. Um, you know, we've seen this happen in the Taycan already, haven't we? Just how it disguises its weight. Um, and how agile you can make a car like that feel so you know if it is still really and also the the other thing is is that you know a range of 200 miles for a car like that will be acceptable in five or six years time because the well let's pray the recharging infrastructure will be you know fit for purpose and because it won't have a very big battery and because you'll be able to charge it at i don't know a couple of hundred kilowatts um you know, you, you, you'll probably only be stock still for 10 minutes, which is probably the same period of time you'd have done anyway. If you um, so, so from all those points of view, then I think it's, you know, I think they're certainly quite encouraging. Um, but it's all the sort of, you know, it's the sound and the feel and it's everything yeah. else. And, you know, 1350 kilos, you know, compared to a Taycan, no, it's not very heavy. But for, I mean, actually, it's, you know, it's not that much heavier, I don't think, than an Exige or an Avora is um, at the moment. And we don't necessarily criticise those for being too large. So maybe there is something to play for. But, you know, I remain, I've said this before, electric sceptic, where it comes to those sorts of cars, where it comes to cars who, unlike the Taycan, which is clearly a tool for doing a job and it's an everyday you know it's a commuter car it's a long distance car when the job becomes to provide driving pleasure which it just must be for any um lotus sports car um that's a very different thing um and you know it is going to be difficult for people to kind of forget the past and forget the time where lotus made cars with normally aspirated um or certainly internally combustion powered um, engines and, and not make the comparison between the two and if the electric cars haven't found a way of replacing all those things we know that they're going to lose um, then it's going to be very hard to conclude anything other than you know things ain't what they used to be um, mm. and then you'll get people like me just boring for Britain on the subject <laughs> um, so let's hope for that reason alone they find a they find a way around it 
Yeah, I, we're both electric sceptic when it comes to sports cars in particular, aren't we? But, I, I mean, we have to be that way because no one has proven us wrong yet. Not yet. Have they? No one's come no. along with a really, a, you know, a, a really valid, great-to-drive electric sports car. We know they're coming. Well, there, have, there haven't been any, has there? I mean, there's the Tesla no. Roadster from way back, um, and no one else has had a go at it yet. No. No. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we'll have to be sceptical until we're... we're you know, proven yeah. one way or the other. Um, okay, right. I, I want to talk quickly about TVR stories because you asked, you wrote a piece sharing your, well, I, I suspect it's not your favourite TVR story, but the, the TVR story that leaps to mind when you're, when you're asked to think of one. And actually, quite a frightening thing. You narrowly avoided being in a, a was it a Cerbera at the Nürburgring? That yeah, it was a, it was a black four and a half liter Cerbera. And it was a really, I mean, the bloke who drove it was okay. Um, but it was a big accident. It was a really big accident going down the foxhole. Um, and yeah, I mean, just if, if you haven't read the post, I mean, very briefly, I, I used to be hired by a track day company to go and show their, uh, their newbies around the Nürburgring. Not, because, not, not out of the kindness of their heart at all, but because on previous occasions when that hadn't done, they all went bouncing off the scenery. And every time that happens, you have to shut the track, which meant all their other punters got really, really annoyed because they could see their track time, which they paid a lot of money for, just sort of going up and smoke while you know, lorries pulled bent cars out of the scenery. Uh, and it was actually quite successful. I mean, their, 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 their crash rate fell through the floor once they, people who, um, who hadn't before kind of knew where the danger points were, which is pretty much all of it. Um, but no, it, 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 it was just a kind of cautionary tale about um, mm-hmm. never being driven by people you don't know, particularly not in quite spiky cars around the Nürburgring because I'd shown this bloke around and I always did all the driving. Um, and he'd actually driven really, 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 really well for a couple of days. And it was that usual thing, wasn't it? It was Sunday afternoon, you know, everybody's getting ready to go home and you think, oh, I'm just going to do one more lap or two more laps or whatever. Um, and you don't realise just how tired you are. Um, and he came over to me and said, look, I've just, you know, thanks so much for your help. Um, I've learned so much. Just, you know, jump in the car. I'll show you around and, you know, you can see how much progress I've made. And I just thought, well, it's a lovely invitation, but I'll think I'll go and, um, you know, dry my hair or something. Um, and so I didn't get in the car and he rolled it into a ball and, um, and that was that. So, um, yeah, cautionary tale. Just don't ever do it. I mean, however much fun, and, and, and actually I can tell far more horrific tales um, of really, really bad stuff that's happened when people have got into cars um, with people they don't know and it's gone wrong. Um, so mm-hmm. just don't mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reason that you shared this story is because a couple of weeks ago, TVR, um, in its current uh, form, guys came out and said, no, we, we are going to build this new Griffith. It is happening. Our factory is going to go up soon. Um, there's a, an enormous amount of skepticism about that whole thing. But I don't know, maybe maybe they will start building these cars at some point. But the point being was that you asked for people's TVR stories because... Uh, if you're a British car enthusiast, perhaps um, of a certain age, you're bound to have one, aren't you? Uh, and we got some brilliant responses. That post, um, I think we had 100 comments in reply. Um, and I've yeah. dug out a few on my phone here. Um, which, and I think between them, they sort of nicely sum up what it is about TVR, why the cars can be so beguiling and so frustrating, um, and why so many people have loved owning them, but now say they just never go back. Um, there's one here from Muck Monkey, who had a racing green Griffith 500, a year old when he bought it with 1,500 miles on the clock. Monstrous car, he says, which made the best noise but had the worst handling ever. Um, yeah. Driving along one day on a country lane, the car just stopped, wouldn't start again. As I got out and shut the door, the wing mirror fell off. Turns out it had blown <laughs> the ECU. And he says, that sums up owning a TVR for me. Got rid and went to Porsche. Never looked back. He says, actually, that's a lie. I went to see a Cigaris at the TVR dealer. When I tried to sit in it, the salesman said, and this is no lie, can you get in the passenger side as the driver's door won't open? That's great, isn't it? There's a mate of ours called Ben Samuelson who will be watching this because he's a huge fan and supporter of Drive Nation. I think that's what we're going to be about. Who will be? And he used to be the PR man for for for, for TVR. He used to be the bloke who used to borrow the cars from, and every time they went wrong, which of course never happened, um, 
he would be the bloke who'd have to try to convince you that actually TVLs were as reliable <laughs> as Porsches and um, this was just like a sort of freak one off and, um, and you'll probably have steam coming out of his ears even listening to us saying, to, saying this now. So have you got any more stories? Yeah, there's another one here um, from Chris Walker 100 who he had a Cerbera and he loved it. Uh, it sounds like he had a great time in it. Um, no big mechanical issues, thankfully. Although I once had to get cellar taped inside for a drive to the dealer because the driver's door catch fell off and it wouldn't stay closed. Cellar <laughs> <laughs> taped in your TVR. Oh, that's, that's brilliant, superb. isn't it? That's he then he then moved into a Corvette C5, another plastic fantastic, which yeah. felt like it would run forever. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. If if you haven't seen it already, go and find that post. It's called. What do we call it? Let's have your TVR stories, please. Look for a yellow Cerbera. <clears throat> I'm just going to read some of the comments. There's one from our mate Dickie Meaden, who said he blew a Rover engine one up while chasing John Barker and Mark Walton across the North York Moors on a performance car test between uh, a TVR and an M3. Proper 80s F1 spec smokescreen job. Imagine the embarrassment when all the people I'd overtaken during the pursuit drove by my, by me while I was sat by the side of the road. Yeah, that's pretty humbling, isn't it? When everyone comes yeah. streaming past and you know you've upset them all by overtaking them. Um, ah, yes, well, we've, we've all been there, haven't we? There's one more from our mate, another mate, Matt Saunders from Autocar. Um, and he says, Ben Samuelson will no doubt be able to confirm this, but I believe the one about the location of the wiring loom being dependent on which day of the week the particular car was built on because one bloke used to run it over the top of the dash and the other bloke underneath is actually true. Uh, although Ben says he can't verify that one. Um, he does say that back in the 70s, the wires were all the same colour, which made identifying a fault quite tricky. Gosh. Oh, dear. It's just so, TV so, here's a, here, isn't it? so here's a question. I... Um, when we posted that story, I put, you know, those little Twitter polls you can do. Um, yeah. And I put out a poll which basically said, do you think TVR will start delivering cars to their customers in 2022? And I, and I had four choices. One was um, no problem, probably, probably not, or not a chance. Um, and I'm afraid, um, you know, I think I had nearly a thousand responses to that. And over 90% of them were either probably not or not a chance. So... There is clearly a huge amount of scepticism about that. And I think it's just simply because I think the fact that the car's been around since 2017. Um, yeah. there, so far as we're aware, there is only one car, which is the one car that has been seen. Um, I don't think they're being helped by the whole TVR history of things not quite being as you'd, you'd hope or want them to be. Um, and... If I had to guess, and I, I'm going to say this only in the hope that, um, you know, if anybody from TVR sees this, they, they take this as an opportunity to, to, we will prove you wrong. You know, sod you, I'll show yeah. you. Um, I think it probably won't happen um, mm. in 2022. And, and, and the real concern is that they really are in danger of being overtaken by time. Um, you know, the market is evolving so fast. People's mm. priorities. And that, it may be, therefore, that they will actually appeal to the diehards, you know, the, the, the guys who, the never-say-die mob, who um, just think, well, I'll go and have a TVR because, you know, sod everybody, and I'm not going to um, change the way that I want to drive my cars just because everybody else is going over to electric this and electric and hybrid that. Yeah. Um, so maybe that there's an opportunity there. But I think it's, I think it's dwindling. And, you know, if they don't, you know, next year's, you know, 2022, it's five years after they first showed the car. Mm. Um, yeah. I really, really cool. hope that they do. You know, don't get me wrong. I really, really hope that they do. But sitting here right now, looking at it, I would say on balance, I would say it's less likely than more, which is a shame. If it does come to market, will it be the only V8 normally aspirated manual sports car you can buy? Well, it almost already yeah. is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you can buy... You can get a Mustang. Uh, you can get a Mustang. Um, you can get a Corvette. Does that count? I think um, so. Was that a yeah. No, I think they're, they're all... No, it's not. It's, it's BDK now, 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 isn't it? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. I'm just trying to think what, what else there is. Um, yeah, that might be it. Maybe some niche stuff. Morgans, have they all gone to automatic gearboxes now? Or can you still get manuals? Yeah, and, 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 they're, they're, and they're all turbocharged as well now. 
Yeah, oh yeah, of course. Uh, so, well, maybe maybe they're at TVR. They're being very smart and just sitting on it for a few years, allowing all this pent pent up energy and uh, you know, yeah, desire for a proper yeah. old school sports car yeah. and I, no cash. I, I, yeah, I really, really yes. hope I'm. You know, I really, really hope I'm wrong. I've had some. I've had. Some, I've actually had some great times in TVRs, and you yeah. always feel. Um, good about being in them um you are you because you're always doing something fun aren't you you know you're, you're not going to go and commute in the rain in a tvr you're always going to be out on some fun journey and, I, and i've had some really really good times in them um so you know for the avoidance of that i really really hope it succeeds yeah i i loved tvr and tvrs as a kid when i was 13 14 15 i was absolutely obsessed with them and i thought they were the most amazing looking things most amazing sounding things yeah. <clears throat> and the interiors they were, there was a spell, sort of late 90s, perhaps through to the noughties, where the, the cabins were like spaceships. The, the most amazing, yeah. the architectural forms of those cabins. It was incredible. Um, yeah. And I just, they, do you remember they had the flip paint for a while? Um, yeah. They were, just to a, to a young adolescent car fanatic, some of those TVRs were utterly mind-blowing. So I... I get this, the, the cynicism around TVR's revival, whether or not it'll happen at all. Um, I think a lot of that scepticism is valid, but there's that teenage kid in me who's just really desperate for it all to happen because I want to have a yeah. go in the new Griffith and for it to be brilliant. Oh, no, I agree. But do you think it'll happen? Uh, uh, I think it's less likely. Uh, uh, yeah, mm. no, I think it's, it's unlikely rather than likely to happen. Um, which is a pity, but I don't know. I'd love to be proven wrong, like you say. Yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, all right, well, let's wrap that one up there. Um, thank you for watching. I'm still impressed that anyone sits through 50 minutes of this, staring at our faces. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this time, I'm gonna, I'll, try and, I, I'll try and drop some images and perhaps bits of footage throughout that's relevant to what we're talking about, because that'll just spare you having to look at our mugs for a few seconds well you're gonna have you're gonna have to do that now aren't you because you because you've said it so if people have got this far and they suddenly realize they haven't seen any images at all then they'll they'll know you fail so you're gonna have to do it now well i might might edit it out if i don't have the time to (laughs) to find all those images uh but anyway thank you for watching and thank you for listening as well i hope you if you're just if you prefer just to listen to an audio podcast i hope you don't feel as though we're sacrificing um that for for this new youtube thing that we're trying to do um but anyway, thank you for listening. Give us some, uh, some feedback. Leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcast. That, that it basically helps surface the podcast and helps other people find it. Um, so it really does make a difference. Uh, and remember to head over to uh, Drive Nation on Instagram, at drivenation underscore, um, and follow us there. Uh, Andrew, thank you for your time. And we'll do this Not again next week. Good to see you. We'll do, look forward to it. All the best. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. 